0: our Weird History mini sewed which is really not so many anymore, where we seek to bring you tales of the strange and unusual throughout history. This week, we are talking about, I, I don't know, I never know the topic. What is it, Melissa? <laughs> you gotta share here, you gotta share. Oh, and we're also joined by two guests. Let's remind everybody about that first. We have, we must welcome back our good friend, Casey.
1: Hi guys, thanks for having me back. Woo!
0: And we have our good friend, Meg.
1: Hello, everybody, and thanks for having me for the first time.
2: Welcome! Yay! And happy Valentine's Day. Happy early Valentine's Day, everybody. This one's for you. So what's our topic again? Four weird romantic tales from the Middle Ages. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, bring it. Let's... (laughs) all right you all ready to start yeah all right so to start off the first one so in the middle ages as we all know they had some very very funny ideas about medicine some make sense to us some most don't but one of the very major beliefs was galen's four humors hot dry cold wet or also phlegm blood black bile and yellow bile And if you were diagnosed with one or combination of the two, your doctor would usually prescribe a treatment that would be of the opposite in order to rebalance the the four humors. Right. (laughs) And in the Middle Ages, melancholy, or as we know today, depression and or sadness, was considered to be based on black bile with a cold and dry disposition. So although depression was seen as a medical ailment, it certainly was not seen as the same as today. It was seen as a medical, not a mental ailment. Most of the time back then, your doctor would actually conclude that you were suffering likely from lovesickness. Oh. Not depression, but you were, you were lovesick. And you could be in the throes of grief, but you're still considered to be in the throes of lovesickness. So there was actually even a treatise by monk, by a monk named Constantine the African who actually drew a connection between black bile and love sickness? And this is a quote from his treatise that love is also called eros, which is a disease touching the brain. Sometimes the cause of this love is an intense natural need to expel a great excess of humors. This illness causes thoughts and worries as the afflicted person seeks to find and possess what they desire. I can see that. I've been love been sick. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody
1: has at one point. I don't know what black bile has to do with all that, though.
2: (laughs) I don't even know where the black bile would be located in your body. I have no clue. Yeah. Is it like, you know, excrement or (laughs) your stomach, maybe? That's the only, I mean, but what about yellow bile? Yellow bile, bile's in your stomach, but you got yellow bile and black bile. Maybe the yellow turned black. I don't know. It's so, that part's confusing. I I have no idea. But what's interesting is. Hold on, make has to comment.
1: Oh, I said it maybe it's like a smoothie. (laughs) Oh. 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 If that's a new smoothie. Oh man, that image. Wow. (laughs) Thanks for that.
2: (laughs) We're starting early in this episode. (laughs) The imagery. The imagery. Well, I mean, if that's where you want to go with that, keep that image in for later, I suppose. (laughs) So later in the 1100s, Gerard of Berry actually expanded on this thesis, stating that, quote, the sufferer becomes fixated on an object of beauty and desire because of an imbalanced constitution. This fixation furthers coldness and perpetuates melancholia. And it's the Middle Ages. There are many examples of melancholia, lost loves, and lovesickness throughout many of the stories of Chaucer's The Book of the Duchess. That describes the Black Knight who's grieving for his uh, deceased beloved. Marie de France's Les du Amants, which is the tale of two lovers. There's a boy who's dying to trying to win the hand of his love, and then the girl he loves dies of grief after he dies. There's John Gower's 14th century poem Confessio Amantis, which is the lover's confession. The main character actually Quote, complains to Venus and Cupid that he's so sick with love, he desires death. And in order to counteract this, Venus is apparently so moved by his plea that she makes him an ointment from which he is cured.
1: Oh my gosh. Would you
2: like I to hear some hear of these one. treatments for love sickness? Yes. This is where it gets fun. Some of these, quote, treatments were exposure to light, gardens, calm and rest, inhalations, warm baths with moistening plants such as violets and lilies. I think that's perfect. I mean, that sounds, that makes sense. Sunlight. Sunlight and exercise, self-care. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. And then- Aromatherapy. Right, light therapy, I mean, yeah, it works. As for food to eat, they say in order to cure the love sickness, you would likely be prescribed to eat lamb, lettuce, eggs, fish, and fruit or cold foods because love is hot. Therefore, you're trying to cure it. Yeah. Calm it down. Yeah. (laughs) Balance. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And if you also have suffered from an imbalance of black bile, you would likely also be prescribed to purge your body, often with emetics, laxatives, or Bloodletting. It's Valentine's Day. Gotta throw in some bloodletting for love sickness. There was actually one doctor who believed in this very thoroughly and believed that if you could control the brain, you could control a person's passions. And this was Jacques Ferrand, who was a French doctor, and he wrote a treaty in 1610 called a treaty on love sickness. And according to his treaties, quote, because this carnal love makes it attack upon the brain also known as the divine fortress of Athena, by the windows of the eyes, you must make sure that no inciting object happens to come into view. So in order to not get lovesick, you must not look at anything that's going to make you desire it. Well, looking
1: at stuff can definitely trigger
2: feelings. Anything. That's not really much of a a part of a Atresus. That's just, you don't want after something, don't look at it. That's pretty much all he's saying. <laughs> if only it were that simple, right? <laughs>
1: kind of like out of sight, out of mind, I guess.
2: I guess I, I, I keep going back to "Songs of the Lambs" and coveting, but <laughs> I'm weird. <scared. laughs> yeah. Which also came out when it when when it when Fr- Signs of the Lambs" actually went out in theaters. It was also on Valentine's Day.
1: Oh, interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Now it was also believed that if you had love sickness and it went untreated, it would also likely cause death, which makes sense. Grief and death, yeah, that can go hand in hand. And Fernanda kind of- actually believed that a successful course of treatment included diet, drugs, and surgery. May I? Mm-hmm.
0: It's kind of like, you know, when an older couple have been together for years and years and one of them passes and the other dies of grief. Yep. Just because the other one's gone. Or even pets. Yeah, same thing. Mm-hmm.
2: Basically, yeah. That's, that's not a bad way of thinking about it. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun for his treaties. So according to Fernand, for diet, you must partake of cooling foods. Endives, chicory, lettuce, anything cold. As we stated before, that was a standard practice. He also says... Do not consume anything spicy or salted. Drink only water, no wine. That would take away a majority of the staples. Back then, salted meat,
0: everything was salted for preserving. I don't think fruit was salted. I know, but meat was a big major staple back then.
2: Yeah, I guess. I don't know. It's essentially don't eat anything that's going to raise your body temperature, I guess.
0: Yeah, but they also didn't have a lot of clean drinking water.
1: Also, like, if you eat spicy foods, it helps you to sweat and to cool you off. And for me, spicy foods would definitely distract me from thoughts of love because I, me and spice, too much spice, it not get along. So that would definitely distract me.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's I learned special. earlier this week that extra spicy foods uh, there's hot cheetos and extra spicy hot cheetos extra spicy hot is actually extra spicy hot i never tried any of those
1: (laughs) i don't desire
2: i like ghost pepper but oh gross ghost pepper
1: i love
0: ghost
1: pepper my brother loves ghost pepper he loves the hotter it is the better it is i did not get that palette (laughs) i just worked my way up to medium and i'm very impressed with myself (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so white. <laughs> well, Italian food they have a little spice, but not well, where my family's from. It's not; they're not into too much spice. There's chili well, pepper, and then there's hot sauce. Yeah, yeah. I like I like heat. I don't like my mouth burning off. I just like warmth. That makes sense. Don't like tingling. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Would you like to hear more of his treatments?
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) So again, no spicy or salted foods, only water, which again, back then was not usually safe to drink. He says no wine. And he says, and and, and in order to cure love sickness, no kissing, groping or petting allowed, must be avoided entirely. And in fact, it was incredibly acceptable and encouraged that if you were in the throes of love sickness, you should go listen to a hellfire sermon or maybe attend the trial of a violent criminal. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sorry. Repeat. Viol- what? Violent criminal? Huh? <laughs> in order to, con- to, to, to cure your love sickness, it's acceptable to go and listen to a hellfire brimstone sermon. Or attend the trial of a violent criminal. That'll scare you straight. That would work. He also says that when you're in the throes of love sickness, you must not sleep on your back because it overheats the kidneys. Oh, okay. I was like, what does that have to do with anything? I didn't know the kidneys could get overheated i didn't know that either <laughs> <laughs> now in regards to drugs we're talking medieval drugs you suggested alternately using cooling and moistening enemas oh lord because <laughs> it's medieval times that was a lot of things that they use if it wasn't bloodletting it was probably enemas mm-hmm. And if the problem continues, you should have some bloodletting done. First from the hepatic vein on the right arm, and if the case was very serious, from the median vein on the right arm.
1: Mm -mm. (laughs) Bloodletting, oh.
2: Now here's where it gets crazy, funny, and questionable about his entire treatise. Despite all of his medical treatments, he did in his treaties make a guaranteed recommendation for curing love sickness. Please tell us. <laughs> he says in order to accurately cure your love sickness, you should go out and enjoy the person who causes your condition. No. I thought it was first it avoid kissing groping petting and yet go out and have sex with the person you desire uh, right exactly that's why i'm calling bull on this thing Mm-mm. some quackery there <laughs> it would be wacko in addition to that and i'm hoping the enjoy part is consensual it was the medieval time so who knows but he also says if the person is married this is strictly prohibited and in this case He recommends dreaming about consummation with said person and hoping of relieving your pain. Again, another contradiction from what he said earlier. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, that's the end of our first of four. Go ahead, Lauren.
1: Differing doctor's opinions.
2: (laughs) Second second opinion. Are we ready for the next one? Why not? We're already this deep. You're only one out of three, or one out of four in right now. You're only quartered away. That's deep enough. <laughs> so next, we are going to talk about a man named Aeneas, or Aeneas, I'm going with Aeneas, Silvius Piccolomini. Now the name probably is not familiar to many people today, but is very, very popular in the 1400s for several reasons, mostly because he happened to have written a book that was one of the best sellers in the entirety of the entire century of the 1400s. And of course, I have to give you a twist ending. But before I tell you about the book, let's go a little bit into his life because this guy is a character into himself. So he was born on October 18th of 1405 into the very long standing Italian House of Piccolomini and was one of 18 children. But the the, the House of Piccolomini, though was very long standing, had kind of lost favor with the court and were um, kind of a bit poor at this point. So he spent most of his youth helping his father work the fields. When he was 18, he went and studied at the University of universities of siena and florence and then after graduating became teacher in florence in 1431 he actually left teaching and became a secretary to the bishop of Thermo, Domenico capranica and was uh, who actually was on his way to the council of basil which ran from 1431 to 1439 and now this is an interesting part and there's almost no information on this but In 1435, he was actually sent on a secret mission to Scotland by Cardinal Ali There's no information about what this mission actually was about. Just a secret mission to Scotland by an Italian Cardinal. But he also, while he was there, he went touring around England as well and eventually went back home to, to Italy and began to participate in more administrative roles for the council. In 1442, he was actually sent as part of an envoy to the Diet of Frankfurt, and from there made his way to Vienna and even visited the court of Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III, who at this point actually offered him a position as imperial court poet. And he soon found himself under the patronage of Chancellor Caspar Schlick. And this is where things start to get a little interesting. It was during this time in 1444 that he wrote a story called a tale of two lovers and some have actually speculated that the story is based on the escapades of his patron and this for the time was an incredibly erotic novel oh. and i'll get into that in just a minute are you gonna read us some <laughs> i have a link in my source notes where you can actually read it it's only about pages. 150, 150 pages So in today's standard, I think that would be considered a short story, not even a novella. But you might read it today and go, this isn't very salacious. The illustrations are, but the storyline may not be to our modern ears, but in the 1440s, it was incredibly salacious. Additionally, in 1445, Uh, Piccolomini actually assisted the Pope in some diplomatic affairs and was eventually posted to the positions of Bishop of Trieste and Bishop of Siena. And during most of the rest of his life, he would continue to aid the Pope and Holy Roman Emperor Frederick III in their diplomatic affairs, which included negotiating with Princess Eleanor of Portugal to marry the Holy Roman Emperor. So that's just on the author's life. So the book... Called A Tale of Two Lovers, details the story of a married woman and her secret affair with her Italian lover. And it is complete with raunchy scenes and salacious illustrations, which I'll have pictures of. And now, given the pictures and storyline, it's also not a wonder that this became a major bestseller of the 1400s and is actually considered one of the best selling novels in the entire century. Oh, wow. And it also is in one of the very first books ever in the style of epistolary, which means the style of reading the story via letters written by the characters. So the best example I have that comes to my head is Dracula, where you follow the the storyline of Jonathan and Mina Harker via the letters they write to each other. And the story is set in Vienna in the 1440s and we follow the beautiful and married Lucretia. Her husband is older than her and often jealous of her beauty because men like her. And apparently while at a funeral, she meets Euralis, who is a much younger uh, than her husband, man in waiting for the Duke of Austria. Exchanging glances at the funeral, the two then start to exchange letters. And the letters as one continues to read the book become very salacious. As well as the illustrations that accompany them.
1: Oh me, oh my! Hold on for my response. That's making me. uh, It's making me save it to the desktop. (laughs) I don't know why. (laughs) Never happened. Oh, la la! (laughs) I I kind of love it. <laughs> Endless for the times, like this is like very PG nowadays.
2: Pretty much, yeah. Would you like to hear the twist? Yes, yes please. <laughs> so it's not a twist to the book; it's a twist to Piccolomini's life. Oh, so his life would change upon the death of Pope Calixtus III, which happened on August six, the fourteenth, fourteen fifty eight. Now, remember, in 1445, he was made a bishop. So by this time, he's now cardinal. And he and several other cardinals would convene to uh, work on electing a new pope. And the very wealthy Cardinal Guillaume de ville seemed as if he was going to be declared the winner. And uh, Aeneas didn't want this, so he deliberately sabotaged it. Oh, This guy... Is full of charisma and an absolute opportunist. So, what do you think he did? No, oh, he took it for himself. Yeah, he did. <laughs> and he became Pope Pius II. Oh, 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 Pius. All right. Ironic, no? Yeah, right, right. Well, what's really interesting about his life is up until he was around 40. He, he he had fathered some children, he would have affairs with women, he would be traveling, he wasn't right, super, erotic. super religious. And then somewhere in around 40, he's like, mm, I think I'll go and serve God. <laughs> but by that time, he'd already written his erotic novel. But what's interesting funny. is he was also a really pro, very prolific author for the time, writing a bunch of histories and g- general treaties and stuff like that. So he this one thing he wrote kind of got outshone by all the other stuff he wrote at least for the time but today he's mostly known as the pope who wrote an erotic novel
1: (laughs) that's really badass
2: (laughs) did he ever write anything religious i'm sure he probably did
1: oh okay that's really it's really that's really cool (laughs)
2: i'm I'm sure if you go to wikipedia and type in pope Pius the second a bunch of stuff is probably going to pop up
1: Yeah, I want to know what kind of pope he ended up being since.
2: He was apparently a a fairly good pope. He only served from 1458 to 1464 when he got sick and died. But apparently he was a very busy pope and passed a lot of things that people liked and was very good at generating money for the churches and was well liked. Was he a little
1: more progressive, would you say, given his background? People like that.
2: Maybe a little bit, but uh, he tried, he, by the time he started becoming the Bishop and then Cardinal and Pope, he, especially when he became Pope, he was like, oh, this novel, I, I, I want it burnt because I feel like this is gonna destroy my, my reputation. But by then, all of his other accomplishments kind of outshone that, even though it was a major bestseller. But also he didn't go by his birthday. So not everyone knew that was him anyway. Oh, he wasn't Pope, Pickle, Me.
1: True. That's quite a twist. Mm -hmm.
2: This next one, three out of four, is one of my absolute freaking favorites. And this is the exact reason I wanted Casey on here in the first place. Oh, yay, what is it? And if you haven't noticed, uh, each story gets progressively crazier. And this is the third one. Oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. (laughs) So, if a marriage is on the rocks in today's modern age, you might go out and seek marriage counseling, right? Mm -hmm. And if it seems unsalvageable, you may take it to divorce court. Now, divorce isn't anything new, of course. So, throughout history, there have been very many different attempts at divorce, whether through legal courts, ecclesiastical courts, running away and starting a new life somewhere being examined by doctors to determine if you were impotent. That was a thing. But at this one, we're gonna talk about a form of medieval divorce court that took till death do us part, literally. Oh, Oh. okay, I'm excited. So in 1467, a book called Fettbuch, which is German for fencing book, was published by author Hans Talhofer. And the book not only depicts fencing techniques, but also offers a variety of ways for husbands and wives to duke it out instead of going through lawful court.
1: No. Uh, Yes. Oh, and
2: the pictures pictures from this book are fantastic. What? No, so the pictures from this book are fantastic. Oh. Now, according to the book... Since men have a biological strength advantage to women, particularly at this time too, because women in they were, it's not like modern where they have gyms to go to and look and lift weights and actually strengthen their bodies. Back then, what were they doing? Running the household and taking care of kids. Men were out in the field doing the toiling and heavy lifting and being in the military. So men definitely had much more of a strength and physical advantage. So the author with the book in mind, wrote various waves of giving the wives certain allowances in order to possibly beat out their husbands. Oh, really? oh. <laughs> in addition, he also wrote complete with illustrations and I've got a plenty of them on how the wife could win in one scenario and also how the husband could win in a separate scenario. Before I show you the pictures, let me just finish my notes because it's going to be done. So uh, according to one of my sources, as per the instructions, the husband was put up to his waist in a three-foot-wide hole dug in the ground with one hand tied behind his back. The woman was to be armed with three rocks, each weighing one to five pounds, and each wrapped in cloth. The man could not leave his hole, but the woman was free to run around the edge of the pit. If the man touched the edge of the pit with either his hand or arm, he had to surrender one of his three clubs that he'd been given at the start and had to give them off to the judges. If the woman hit him with a rock while he was doing so, she also had to forfeit one of her stones. According to the drawings within the manuscript, allowing for various options, if the wife and husband both ended up having to forfeit all of their weapons, they then had to fight hand to hand, not hand in hand, much like a wrestling match. Promoting domestic violence much?
1: <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, hmm. it's one way to settle things.
2: <laughs> Let me get you
1: some pictures. I couldn't even imagine doing that to my husband, even if I was that mad.
0: Yeah, but you got a nice husband.
1: I do. I had the sweetest husband in the world, but I've, you know I've gotten mad at him. I'm fire hot with anger, but I'm not. I'm not a violent person to begin with. But I mean, the man dotes on you. He does. That's
0: For true. You're everything, love.
1: I'm spoiled. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. that is kind of cool oh my gosh <laughs> that's screwed up
2: oh my gosh like you, can see real... the, you can see the outfits in order to give yeah. each other just a general advantage they're essentially in onesies each of them that's what i was going to say it looks like they're in
1: wrestling gear you know There's some serious business here.
2: I kind of like the pile drive in the very last picture. Me too. That's I I
0: like the one going head first down.
1: Yeah, that's a pile drive. I like the one above it too. (laughs) Look at me before I finish you off. (laughs) Kill you.
2: Oh man, that's intense. That's actually that's the, uh, the literally till death do us part. Yeah. Because if the man won the trial, the woman was buried alive. <gasps> oh.
1: What if the woman won? Her husband was executed. Oh, oh okay. Oh, hmm. I guess that's
0: one way to say it's no longer on your conscience.
2: <laughs> it wasn't apparently a super common thing to happen. The next one on our list was apparently quite common. Mm. Ready for the crazy? If you thought those last three were crazy, we're about to get into the best one, sort of. Oh, just for uh, the listeners, this last section is a bit explicit, so um, there's a uh, young ears maybe not listen to this last section. So, as we just briefly talked about, medieval divorce court. Back then, it was also particularly difficult for women to get divorced. I mean, even for the longest time, until modern century, it was hard enough for women to even get divorced, to actually be the one going out and getting it. And there were very, very few grounds for getting a divorce. Uh, Sometimes this might include adultery, depending on the situation blood closeness particularly if you're of royal descent and you were too close in blood relations and then all of a sudden oh, the pope says this isn't a lawful marriage And all there you go sometimes it's about sterility on the women's part or uh, impotence on the man's part so we are now going to talk about medieval impotence trials i can't hear anything i'm just hearing emotions gotta give the listeners something Sorry. Right. sweet <laughs> please and share that. with the class
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're just sitting here waiting and waiting
1: and waiting and waiting is it a
2: very long wait don't make us wait any longer <laughs> yeah hurry up fine dirty joke not working okay then <laughs> no i got it If <laughs> you're going there you told me this is a pg show <laughs> We just say no cursing. I never said this was PG. Oh, okay. All right. So going back to the story. So back in medieval times, marriages were seen as sacrament and were often overseen by the church. And so in any case of divorce, it would have to go through ecclesiastical court, not a lawful court. And this meant that in cases of impotence, the church court officials could enact on the validity of the claim by the wife. According to a study in 2008, there are documents, two cases of divorce by impotence from the 1300s and five from the 1400s that still exist uh, in documents today. And according to another source, there's, a, there's an estimate, estimation of around 10,000 impotence trials throughout Europe in just the 1600s alone.
1: That is an incredible number for that time. Wow.
2: Women didn't have a lot of rights. If you didn't mm-hmm. like your husband, there's only a few handfuls away on yeah. marriage. So, in cases of divorce and ecclesiastical court, the court officials would, much like a normal court, go out and gather evidence and assess if the claims were actually true and how well they would stand up. <laughs> really? All right. Get into the deeds. <laughs> Sometimes they would even include something called a trial by Congress, which is where copulation between husband and wife were performed in front of a group of doctors and church lawyers to visually and accurately determine if the husband was still able to perform his required marriage duties. Uh, okay.
1: <laughs> oh man, well that. That would put a lot of pressure on him. I I know men who can't perform under pressure. <laughs> it gets worse. So that would be not a
2: good thing. Well, during these inspections, his uh for the lack of a better word, I don't know. Lauren, are we okay with saying the word penis?
0: I don't have anything against it. Just right, as we said, no, no kids.
2: All right then, so during these inspections, his penis and balls and all that jazz would be very closely looked at, particularly the shape and color. And during these examinations, questions would generally be asked, such as, can he have or sustain an erection? Was he able to put up a healthy performance? And most importantly, had he been copulating without the promise of children? Oh. And apparently sometimes the organs would then be submerged in hot water then immediately followed by being submerged in ice cold water to perceive the blood flow in the area. Somehow that was a medical thing. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Oh, yikes. (laughs) So one case from 1370 says that there were actually three women tasked with, with examining the husband on trial. And this is a quote from that. The member of the husband is like an empty intestine of mottled skin, and it does not have any flesh in it or veins in the skin. And the middle of it, its front is totally black, which just made me go, ill in the first place. The witness stroked it with her hands and thus being stroked put it in place that it neither expanded nor grew mm-hmm. <laughs> okay so another case in 1441 apparently several women fully dressed began kissing embracing and fondling the husband who was on trial and, <laughs> oh. the, and the quote from that one goes exposed her naked breast with her hands warmed at the set fire she held and rubbed his penis and testicles of the husband she embraced and frequently kissed the husband and stirred him up in so far as she could to show his virility and potency, admonishing him for shame that he should then there prove and render himself a man. And she says, examined and diligent, dil- diligently questioned that the whole time aforesaid, the set penis was scarcely three inches long. Oh my gosh. <laughs> You're on mute, Lauren. Hold well on. Oh, dear. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it gets better. It doesn't matter that he was erected. his inches. He wasn't long. He wasn't big enough when it erected. to... Well,
2: what they were trying to do to see if he could have an erection, could sustain an erection, could ejaculate, and, and just pretty much be biologically virile. But sometimes it wasn't just women who went on the witness against the husband. Sometimes you would have men being asked to testify. Oh. Mm-hmm. So another quote from my source, other times men were the witnesses. For example, in the 1370 case, a man testified to having seen the husband and wife trying to have sex in a barn. Although the couple was, quote, applying themselves with zeal, he said the husband's, quote, rod was lowered and no way of rising or becoming erect. (laughs) Somebody likes voyeurism. Yep, that's what I was (laughs) (laughs) going to (laughs) say. And additionally, in a 1368 case, the husband went into hiding when asked to undergo a physical exam. As a result, the court let another man testify to the wife's attestations that she, quote, often tried to find the place of her husband's genitals with her hands when she lay in bed with him and he was asleep, and that she could not stroke nor find anything there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> These are just too good. Now, if he failed to, if, if the husband failed the test, he was actually able to demand yet another trial by Congress prove himself so the, the first one generally is a physical examination the second one if he got a second chance uh he could engage in sex with his wife in front of the court and doctors and lawyers and the aftermath of said sex was examined by the congress of both husband and wife to ensure that all was as expected oh Okay, stepping up a notch. <laughs> very, very closely examined. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Sometimes, sometimes you would have the lawyers. So sometimes you would have, like we talked about, the women were fondling the the husband during the physical examination. Sometimes during the copulation examination, you would have the wife and husband in bed, and then there would be like midwives. Really watching every movement of the couple to make sure that they were doing it correctly while also the court lawyers watched on too. Okay so let's say they weren't doing it correctly
1: is there was there any redemption like could they teach them how to do it correctly so they wouldn't be buried alive or executed
2: or I think in this case, the man is supposed to know how to impregnate his wife and is expected to know how to do that because the men I have to keep in mind for most of humanity, at least in civilized humanity, men could go out and have sex and father illegitimate children. So by the time he's married, he should already know how to please a woman. That isn't always the case. Not even today. <laughs> I'm not saying that it is. I'm saying that's generally what I I most I yeah. thought back then. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay. And now if the wife was not willing to participate in this second act of uh, trial by Congress and have sex in front of the the court with her husband, the husband was actually allowed to try to copulate with an experienced woman, (laughs) a sexually experienced woman. And both parties afterwards would then be very closely examined by the doctors. Now, the impotence trials, though, weren't solely the job of whether or not the husband could perform. The wife was also scrutinized. This part makes no sense to me, but okay. So they would often ask her questions during the trial and ask her how often she and her husband would have sex and even if in which positions. If this position, that position how often in this position how long would it last in that position did you enjoy it
0: <laughs> oh i just uh, i can't imagine doing that in front of an entire court
1: i imagine some might find it kinky some might be into it but not many i i
2: have a feeling many probably were secretly into it because you also didn't have a whole lot of form of entertainment yeah but you you couldn't outwardly say oh oh I, I i like to watch people have sex you'd just be there going okay hope nothing happens i mean actually like the people performing it like pre- having
1: sex oh i've I- seen everybody oh okay
2: gotcha i mean you've got doctors and lawyers watching your every move while you're trying to fornicate. oh <laughs> and they're not the kinky ones mm-hmm Additionally, for the wife, there was even apparently a test by diuretic. This is the part that makes no sense. So a wife was usually made to make, to, to, she was asked to drink some kind of diuretic. And according to the doctors at this time in the 13 and 1400s, if she drank it and then immediately urinated, she was not a virgin. If she drank it and then it took time to pass the liquid, She was still a virgin because apparently back then virgins were not considered to be able to pee as fast as uh, married women. Explain that one to me. (laughs) There is no explanation. It's a different hole. There is no explanation. It's a whole different organ. The bladder is separate from the uterus. Insanity. (laughs) How does that even make any sense? Mm. oh man now although these trials were specific and uh i'm sorry these trials these specific impotence trials were meant to be secret and private um they weren't always kept that way of course Uh, not because gossip is wonderful oh sexual gossip i mean even today (laughs) so juicy (laughs) if if some celebrity has a sex tape that's linked you don't think it gets everywhere Mm mm-hmm now, of course, these trials, because they're trials, would uh, eventually make their way to the press and were, of course, incredibly sensational at any time that one actually happened. So imagine, as I mentioned before, one of my sources said that there was an estimation of 10,000 throughout the entire, entirety of the 1600s throughout Europe. That's a lot of press, presuming that not, maybe even half of that went to the press.
1: Good press. <laughs> good for, good for the, the press, you know, all oh, the paparazzi. There's no such thing as bad
2: press. There you go. And what's really interesting is sometimes these trials could go on for several months, several months. Well, if the husband was too embarrassed at the least, or not willing to participate, he could run away and go into hiding. You'd have to figure out where he went because sometimes they just didn't want to participate. Hmm, I can see that. Or for other reasons, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. Now, once these trials were actually completed, there were typically three types of outcomes. The first, if impotence was proven, the marriage would be annulled with the condition that one or both parties be allowed to remarry if they wish to. And if the woman won, her dowry actually had to be paid back to her husband, and then she could return to her family. So he got the money and she can go home. Back then,
1: that probably wasn't too bad of a, a deal, you know, especially if you're in a really bad marriage. <laughs> but then,
2: that sucks. <laughs> it's not yeah. fair. And then two, if evidence wasn't proven, the parties actually had to remain as husband and wife. And three, apparently in very rare cases, if the couples, whether, it didn't specifically say whether impotence was proven or disproven, it just said in very rare cases, couples were actually asked to continue living together for another three years to see if the situation would get any better. Now, impotence trials, I think probably started earlier than the 1300s, maybe not too long before that, but certainly before that. And what actually continued to last for centuries uh, and only began to sort of dwindle as the 1800s started, as apparently back then other avenues of divorce emerged, and also went from ecclesiastical court to lawful court. Additionally, sometime after the trial, a husband, despite the outcome, might also father child later with yet another woman. Thus, also leaving people to wonder about the importance and accuracy of course of such trials. As it should lead them to question that. (laughs) Always question, 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 question. But how's that for your Valentine's Day weird history? (laughs) That was a good one. Not very Valentine's y. I said it was Weird Tales yeah. of Medieval Love, not Valentine's.
0: <laughs>
2: well, Maybe this, this, this helps all of
1: our, um, our single friends realize that maybe it's for the best they're single.
2: <laughs> but that's all, that's all I've got. I, well, those are your four Weird uh, Tales of Medieval Love. Thank
1: you. That
0: was fascinating. Thanks for having me on for that. Thank you for making me happy to be single.
2: (laughs) Well, if you get bored, you can read Tale of Two Lovers by Pope Pius. It's in the source notes.
1: Awesome. (laughs) I will think about it very carefully. What you should do is you should have a Galentine's Day and all take turns reading it aloud. (laughs) Have lots of wine for Galentine's Day.
0: <laughs> she said we should have a gallon. Casey said we should have a Galentine's Day and read parts of the Pope Pius book aloud. Are you in? Oh my God, yes.
2: <laughs> How about you, Melissa? Are you in? Oh, of course. Oh, 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 oh. But on one stipulation, we do it in either silly or sexy voices.
1: Okay. <laughs> okay, you need to record like a little clip, like a little snippet and put, you have to put it on.
2: Oh my gosh, oh my gosh. No, 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 no. We don't just read it. We tried to make it into an audiobook. Get all breathy like Marilyn Monroe.
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. I won't partake even though I'm a married lady. Well, I could play the married lady. You could be the married one. Yeah, I'm
0: all good. for it. I'm going to be the judge.
2: That sounds like you. Voice. <laughs> Somebody's got to play the husband, or, or no? Somebody has to play the husband, and somebody has to play the lover.
0: That's you, Melissa. You're the husband.
1: <laughs> Hi,
2: baby. Hello. <laughs> you <doing? laughs> it's not <worth> your face. <laughs> Does that make Meg the, sal- the, 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 the salacious Italian lover with the secret love affair with Casey? Okay. Yes to me, yes. To me baby. <laughs> and she'll do it
0: in an Italian accent that I can't do. You no. I can't do accents. I'll just be the funny voice person. Unless it's a Filipino accent, I can do that. Can I do it in a Filipino accent?
2: I can do whatever you want.
1: <laughs> what the fuck did I just agree to? He's like, "What a turn this has taken." <laughs> I'm trying not to die.
0: Oh god. Uh. <laughs>
2: <gasps> when don't you have fun with these stories? I expect you to laugh. I'm
0: trying to do the outro. Stop. <laughs> well. That'll do for this episode of History Explains It All. Thank you, Casey and Meg, for joining us on this lovely episode. Hope everyone has a great Valentine's
1: Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. And happy Valentine's Day as well. Yes,
0: yes, thank you. And we hope to see you next week as we trek through history. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I almost forgot to talk about art. Uh, social media sources that's it we have if you'd like to email us you can at history explains all at gmail.com we do also have our facebook and instagram pages which are history explains it all underscore podcast where we post either a today in history or a uh, archaeology in the news and all about the episode and our sources as well as sometimes we do the Upcoming episode polls, so that you can vote on which one that is. But we do hope to see you next week as we trek through history too. Everybody, ex- explain
2: it all. it all. Thanks, Meg. <laughs>
1: <laughs> She's new. She's a noob. Love you. Bye, Bye. Bye. Bye
2: everyone. You're a bit there we go. Right. Okay, cool. That works.
0: <laughs> we'll just pass. I, to my I read up.
2: Before. I read up a little bit on the on the topic. Um, I it's it's all you really. Um, I know you guys have stuff you want to say. So if there's really something I feel like I can contribute, I'll <laughs>
1: go for it. But otherwise I'm I'm just here for the ride. <laughs> Damn, I didn't do any research because you guys tell me not to do anything. Oh we okay. get on here. You're gonna be surprised too. Yeah. Okay, I don't want to be the only, like, one who doesn't know anything, so, cool.
2: Lauren never knows. I tell her to stay off anchor so she doesn't find out. (laughs)
1: Well, unless the topic is
0: different than what I'm thinking since we planned this out.
2: Nope. I only, I only told you to tell Casey that if she liked the medieval animal court episode, she'll love this one. And happy new year.
1: We're in 2022, baby.
2: Oh, this episode is going out before, uh, like, around uh, Valentine's Day. So we're already into February oh. with this one. We're, we're long <laughs> past Valentine's need, Day. But... Okay, now we can do a looper reel. Yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, that wasn't enough. Earlier. I'm not cutting anything out of this episode. It's going to air as is. What are you talking about?
0: I really hope you do cut, like, a few things out here and there. Oh.